could you just introduce yourself to everyone tell us about you and yeah hello i am dean atta i am a poet and author of the black flamingo and i'm currently in my flat in glasgow i live here with my partner tom i'm originally from london um but i moved for love <laughs> <laughs> and um yeah i'm, on, I'm in uh, quarantine no i'm not in quarantine social distancing um, <laughs> and um really happy that we can stay connected via via all sorts of technology right now me too i feel like um when the plague happened back in like 1918 i don't know how they did it <laughs> i thought you were there the way you say it. <laughs> when the plague happened back in 1918 <laughs> no i wasn't there I'm not, i wasn't even there like most of the 90s so <laughs> I'm 21. Gosh. Yeah. Wow. I'm 35. So it's really interesting being in YA because I think, I don't know, there's a whole wide age range of YA authors, but I feel like I would have written a completely different book if I'd written my YA book at 21 or 20 or as an actual teenager. Um, so, because I looked back as research for this book, I looked back on my poetry that I was writing when I was a teenager. Um, to kind of see the voice and kind of the energy I wanted to put into the writing. But I couldn't write, like, the way I was writing when I was a teenager. It was so, like, angry. I was so furious at everything. Um, and so emotional um, in, like, you know, natural ways. Like, it's an emotional time being a teenager. But I don't think if I'd written as as my teenage self, it would have written more. <laughs> And I'll just say, actually, like, your book is amazing. And I felt like the voice was so, like, just, it just felt so, like, nice and, like, teenage And, like, I don't, I don't know what to say, but, like, it's just really lovely. I think that you did it well. Thank you. I guess the voice was my biggest kind of um, challenge because you meet the character at the age of six mm-hmm. and then he goes... Um, through the book he grows up to be 19 at the end of the book but I had to kind of work out how to do a six-year-old voice then a seven eight nine ten all the way up till 19 so kind of his vocab expands as you go through the book he kind of is more observant about things that maybe he missed when he was younger and like you kind of get to see his kind of world expanding as he grows up basically and so um yeah and that's down to like what people tell him what he overhears what he reads and watches and listens to um and it all kind of gets absorbed and you get get to see him grow and i think the only way you can do that in a book is with vocabulary and kind of the the type of um language and dialect he he adopts as he goes goes forward i guess um but that was really interesting for me because um yeah just trying to trying to make sure that a six-year-old really sounded like a six-year-old um but was still giving enough information to a reader who's going to be a teenager or an adult so it was it was kind of like because if you talk to a six-year-old they're not always (laughs) (laughs) going to be able to tell you the most compelling story so it was really interesting to write as a six-year-old but for teenagers and adults and then you know to become a teenager in the book um you know later on but to not necessarily like ape my teenage self because my teenage self was completely different to michael is like mike was a lot more considered and um much more articulate probably than i was as a teenager um but i think that's because teenagers today are just more aware like and have much more information at their disposal 
and kind of can use the correct terminology as well because it's actually readily available on the internet. And so there's things that I would have been much more clumsy about saying that Michael says so beautifully in the book. He really does. And I think that you write so well, like the six-year-old to the teenager. And I'm actually going to tell ask you to tell everyone what your book is about. But um, <laughs> I think you should write MG one day because it's just so... Like, I feel like there was, like, this innocence and, like, a pain that was very, like... It felt like... I felt the frustration of, like, not really knowing why adults are doing things. And then him growing up and, like, um, being a teenager who understands a bit more but is, like, now... I don't know, like the glass has shattered. But anyway, could you just tell everyone what your book is actually about for people that haven't heard of it or haven't read it yet? Yeah, so The Black Flamingo is about a boy called Michael growing up in London um, with his single mother and his younger sister, um, figuring out his mixed race identity, um, dealing with his dad not being around, later on coming out as gay. And then when he gets to university, um, finding a new passion in drag performance and becoming the black flamingo, his drag persona. Does so that sound cool. right? You, yes. As a reader, does that sound like what the book's uh, about? Yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and so beautifully written. I was crying oh. when I read it. Yeah? Yeah. What, in particular parts? like what, what, what? Oh my gosh. Um, One part that made me really cry was... um. Oh my gosh. So basically there's a scene where Michael, well, it happens throughout the book anyway, but like Michael has kind of a thing for white guys and um, he doesn't unpack that until the very end. But like, that's one thing that really, really stuck with me. But also there was um, just throughout, there was a lot of pain that I really felt connected to. And just, I felt so, I just felt everything he was feeling. And also I loved his uncle so much. I don't feel like, I, I didn't have like a father figure in my life either. So like um, seeing his uncle be this amazing black father figure was just mm. amazing. I saw the, was it Financial Times? Tried yeah. to erase that. That was really irritating. Yeah, I mean, some of the reviews, it's really interesting because I believe that people have read the book, but they what they take away from it is so different to what's actually there mm-hmm. in, in black and white. Like, <laughs> in print. like um, so the Financial Times in particular, it was a sense of, they said that his Jamaican family had a problem with him being gay, which doesn't happen in the book. <laughs> at all. Um, no, not at all. Um, what does happen is Michael reflects on the fact that in Jamaica, mm-hmm. there's extreme homophobia and it's illegal. And he is asked by his grandmother if he'd like to go on a trip to Jamaica. And that the idea of that is quite scary to him. Mm-hmm. And I think that is something that um, was right for me to mention. Like, I've been to Jamaica myself two times, but even when... You know, I was there and safe amongst my family who know I'm gay and love me. I still felt nervous when we went out, um, when we went to a club one time, or even when we were just hanging out on the beach and chatting to to people because there is a lot of casual homophobia. There is some things that get said that I just had to bite my tongue because I didn't want to put myself in danger. And so, you know, that but that's in Jamaica. Like that's mm-hmm. that's I'm not talking about Britain, and I wasn't talking about Michael's family. Um, in particular, I think culture and family, you know, and laws and society are very different things. And so um, I think that review in particular didn't allow for nuance in what was being said. They just kind of like made it this kind of Jamaicans have a problem with gay people. And that is not 
true on the whole you know that is some jamaicans in jamaica and you know some british white british people have problems with with, with gay people i was gonna say and jamaican people actually <laughs> but like, <laughs> you're not wrong problems with people like and um it, it goes across sexuality and race but um i think when a review that has only a limited word count tries to deal with something quite big and gets it so wrong it's a shame because you know there's some people that will only read that review and I won't go on to read the book and will take away a, a perception of the book which isn't correct um, but yeah um, so it's, it's, it's difficult when you put such kind of things that are quite close to you as well as a person um, into your character and when people misunderstand it you feel like they're misunderstanding you as well yeah. um, which is quite difficult but I have to try and find a separation between me and Michael because you know his 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 teams are very different to what my teams were like anyway yeah and I really appreciated as well the way you I don't know there was like a it was kind of it was subtle but like I felt there was like a, a an acknowledgement and appreciation for black women and I really mm. really appreciated that as well I feel like I don't see that often in literature and in YA which is what I read mostly so thank you so much for writing this book it's one of my favorite books of all time now <laughs> along with what I want to know what else is, is in there so I know what it's against or, or with <laughs> <laughs> um what else I, I read recently read um Black Girl Unlimited uh-huh. by Echo Brown and that's about yeah. like black womanhood and it's a YA book written about like how black women are wizards and it's oh. so speculative and it, I cried a lot so actually like your book and that book are probably my favourite of all time oh my gosh yeah. brilliant and I haven't read it so now I'm excited to get hold of that and read it thank <laughs> oh, you oh it's so good <laughs> <laughs> and um, what got you into poetry? Um, it was my way to write what I was feeling what I was thinking my opinions that no one wanted to hear um, <laughs> just get them all down and make sense of it all basically and so I wrote as a teenager for myself, first and foremost. And um, then later on, I guess when I was 15, 16, 17, I started going to open mics and um, reading those out and getting a good response. Um, mostly I would go on my own and just like the room would be full of strangers. And that was really cool for me because, you know, if they didn't like it, I'd never have to see them again. Um, but also just it made me feel brave, you know, to go and tell my truths to this room of, of strangers, most of whom were older than me and uh, a lot of whom were, were white. Like, I'd go to different spots around London, so sometimes I'd go to, like, Kensington Library, there was something there. Sometimes I'd go to Covent Garden, there was an open mic there at the Poetry Cafe. Um, sometimes I'd go to places in Brixton and Hackney, and they'd be very different to the... Uh, previous to I mentioned because there'd be more black and but then when I when I like read poetry in the black spaces I feel like um, me talking about sexuality was really controversial to them but at the same time um, it was it was it was actually quite welcomed and uh, people called me brave and said you know some people would actually say to me like oh like I don't really agree with what you're saying but like respect like, <laughs> for saying it um, and then in the you know more white spaces people would be like misunderstanding me and calling me like a urban poet and a hip hop poet and like saying oh my gosh it must have been um, really hard for you to come out did you, did you say your family are Jamaican like, <laughs> like, I'm 
very religious. Oh my goodness, how tough that must have been for you. So it was, I was getting all sorts of stuff um, around race and sexuality come back, um, you know, at me when I'd read my work. So I think the poems themselves were only the beginning of these conversations. Like I think when you write from personal experience as well, it invites people to come and talk to you. Um, and so that um, was something I had to learn to deal with, that I had this poem called Fatherless Nation about my dad not being around. And people would come up to me and talk to me about their dads not being around and their dads dying or their you know, estrangement from their fathers or different things going on in their family dynamics. And because and they, people would come up to me in tears because they it touched something of their own experience. So that was, as a teenager, quite challenging for me to deal with because I'm not your therapist, but here you are <laughs> telling me your whole life story um, because I shared a bit of mine. And so now you feel safer to talk to me. And I get it. Um, so, yeah, I, I knew really early on poetry was a, like a bridge between people, essentially. And when I read poetry, like poetry of Maya Angelou or Gil Scott Heron, um, or listened to stuff like um, Deaf Poetry Jam on, on YouTube and watch those videos, I'd feel like such a immediate connection to these people, even though some of their experiences were wildly different to my own. I feel like I understood them through their, through their poetry. 100% I everything you said I agree with so much I feel like um, I've always loved poetry I've been scared to write it myself because I just feel like I wouldn't be able to do it as beautifully but I've always felt connected like um, I remember in school when I was like um, 15 maybe and um, I was trying to like I was starting to realize I was a black person in this world and what that meant and I remember I listened to John Agard and I felt like his anger like I because I listened to him first and then I was like, he sounds so angry. And um, I was like, <laughs> I was dissecting it. And I was like, why is he angry? And I kind of started to realize um, it's all the same kind of thing. But um, I, I'm obviously not mixed race and I, I don't um, I don't have his experience. But I felt the pain in his voice and in his words. And I was like really connected. So I think poetry, it really does something to you. And it makes you feel connected to people you've never met. Definitely. And then it's weird, like if you become a poet, which I am, like you get to meet these poets like and i like because i've met john agard i've oh actually gone on a tour um in st lucia with him and we did readings around um schools secondary schools and primary schools and um it was just so wild to like do poems john agard does poems i do some poems and then we take questions from the students like it was just the stranger and we stayed in uh, in a in a place together and like drank rum in the evenings and chatted oh about <laughs> our lives and poetry and and he gave me all this advice, and he's he's, he's such a, a really sweet, kind man, and he's, he's got some strong opinions, and he, he kept telling me, and he, even when I see him now, like, like, don't get put into a box, like, don't be just uh, be seen as the gay poet, but I'm like, actually, I don't mind being seen as a gay author, because um, there aren't enough of us that are visible, mm -hmm. so, you know, I think as a black gay role model, I want to be, you know, known as those things, because um, until there's... A whole plethora of us and and it's not anything remarkable i'm happy to stand up and be counted in that regard um but i think he he didn't want me to be like typecast or put in a box because he thought it would limit my career but i've started to see that actually it's giving me it's opening doors and it's it's it's, it's amplifying my voice because unfortunately there aren't enough 
of our voices, of black queer voices. And so when there are more, and my voice is an un- unremarkable one, I'll, I'll happily like step back and write about something else. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I agree 100%. Also, I'm so jealous of you. <laughs> Because oh my god, I love like I love oh Jenny. Like, should, I, should I list should I list the like the folks? Like I mean I'm <laughs> not to show <laughs> Go up, on. Like poetry has, you know, connected me to people like Benjamin Zephaniah. Oh my god. Who gave me a lot of support with my first book, I'm Nobody's Nigger. Mm-hmm. And then moving into YA, you know, having Mallory Blackman be a fan of, of the Black Flamingo and, and give a quote for the front of the book and, you know, having done like twitter q a with her recently and and just be able to dm mallory blackman about stuff is she's like checked in with me how are you doing on lockdown like how's life and i'm just like that's mallory blackman checked in with me like and prior to that i think with john agard like he's been remarkable as has benjamin zephaniah but like when my granddad died like john agard gave me a call and was like I heard your granddad died like how are you do you need to talk about it and I was like oh my my goodness yeah so it's just it's more than you know role models and 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 colleagues these people are just um just wonderful human beings that are looking out for others and I just think that's that's so great and you know I want to take example from them and be able to do that in the future for those that are coming up because um you know it's it makes a difference knowing that people have, have seen you and recognize you and, and want to acknowledge what you're doing, but also just acknowledge you as a person. Because when people are that famous, like, uh, you know, they don't have to reach out or, or kind of, you know, reply to us. <laughs> like, but when they do, it's just amazing, isn't it? It like, is. And I feel like so many people, I don't know, I expected people to be assholes a lot more, but um, I think... Oh, we swore on this podcast. I oh. didn't know. I've been watching my language. <laughs> when I just said I'm nobody's nigger, I was like, I wonder if that's allowed to be said. Oh, no, like, be free. Assholes. I'm like, okay, we're going to be free now. <laughs> no, no, be free. <laughs> okay. So many people that I've met, I like most people are so nice and... Um, it's just so nice. And I, I can't believe that you've been able to be, like, um, coherent around um, Mallory Blackman. I met her at Yelk, just like, you know, when you're signing books for people, like, when yeah. she was signing books for people last year, and I could barely yeah. talk. Yeah. No, I met her at Yelk with um, Alexandra Shepard, was there. Oh, I love Alexandra. And Alex was much more coherent. I was just like, nice to meet you, Mallory, and kind of <laughs> stepped away. Also because I was seeing two black women talking, and I didn't really want to jump in. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I kind of saw that they were having a really special moment. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, I'll say hello, but my moment with Mallory's going to come later. And then it did. And so that's why I, I kind of um, trust that things happen at the right time, you know, um, and not try and take other people's moments from them as well. So, um, but yeah, there's there's so many wonderful authors out there. And that's why I love, you know, Yalk and, and all, the, all the book festivals that I've been to so far. It's just... It's so special for the readers to, to meet the authors, but I think it's incredible for the authors to meet each other because we are readers too. Yeah. And I think that's that's the thing, and that that's what makes it, um, you know, and you feel more part of a community because you spent your, probably for most of us, like a year, if not more, writing our book pretty much on our own with occasional emails to our editor. Like, and so to be out in the world and, and meeting people and, and chatting to people that have had this similar experience as well, it's really special to you know to, to chat shop with people as well you know it um, is and, and to also like gossip <laughs> <laughs> i do that way too much 
we'll talk after this recording. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and actually, um, so your book's written in verse, which is such yes. an interesting um, style. I love poetry, so I'm so interested in verse. And I wanted to know, what are your favourite books written in verse? Oh, The Poet X by mm-hmm. Elizabeth Acevedo was like just a breath of fresh air because it's just it's it's so spare with the with the words but they're they're all so precise and they all just hit you emotionally and you know visually they're very vivid even though she doesn't take loads of time to describe the scene she just gives you an image that captures you do you know what i mean yeah and then i think um jason reynolds long way down especially because of the kind of condensed time that that book takes place over um i think so much happens and you're just with it and it doesn't let up you know um and i really enjoy that and if anyone hasn't read it it's like an, an elevator ride the lift is going down and um, on the way the character is visited by ghosts basically and um it's kind of like um christmas carol isn't it in the way that yeah. it kind of like tells that story um and gives the character an option at the end you know um but then um sarah crossan's writing i think is really beautiful and for me moonrise i think was really um one that captured me because I think it, it was telling a much bigger story, you know, outside of the personal journey. There was a lot going on to do with like the idea of the the death penalty and then crime and justice and and and, and yeah, it just tackled a lot. Um, and but it, it it stayed with the main character. And I think first novels I think work best if they're first person point of view, staying with the main character. I think Jacqueline Woodson's Brown Girl Dreaming. Um, is really great and I think I took some influence from from that book and the Poet X in terms of how I introduced my character and how you get to know people periodically over their time influencing the main character so it's not necessarily that you jump and hear loads about one character outside of the main character, you hear about them as they have an influence on our protagonist basically Um, so I guess those ones and I think I use them all to kind of like uh, you know, basically show me how to do this because this was the first attempt of a verse novel for me and um, it's the only way you would have got me to write a novel was a verse novel because I've come straight from poetry to this, to fiction and um, had it not been suggested that I do a verse novel if someone just said write prose I'd have just been like, no thank you don't care what the advance is I'm just not interested in that like, <laughs> to be honest um, but a verse novel felt like a, a kind of still like a summit, but a summit I could reach, you know, like it was like, okay, that looks like a scary, scary one. But look, here are all these other explorers that have gone before me and then climbed that mountain. So, um, you know, gone from poetry into prose. I think that was the thing, seeing that other people had done that, like gone from poetry to prose or, or the verse novel form um, means that. And then you actually realize it's, it's not too dissimilar, you know. I think a, a well-written uh, prose book, like if you've ever read um, Langston Hughes's novel, Not Without Laughter, I haven't, like yeah. it is, it's poetry, but it's not laid out like a verse novel. But it's so precise in its word choices. It's every sentence is just a line of poetry, basically. And when I read that, that was many years ago. I read that book, but I was just like. And I was, I was looking and I was saying, has he written any others? It's like, no, that was his one, because that's the one he had in him. Mm-hmm. So, like, if, if this is my only novel, I'll be... I mean, it's not, because I've got another one. 
<laughs> like, if it was my only novel, <laughs> I'd be like, done a good job there. People can read that alongside my poetry and think, okay, there, he did the thing. He did the thing. Um, but yeah, I didn't ever think of myself as, as writing novels. That was not something I grew up thinking I'd do. Okay. Is it something you always wanted to do, to write novels? Uh, yes, I've always, like... I've always wanted to write like prose novels and everything. I never even thought that verse was a thing. Cause I've loved poetry. I've mm. like secretly maybe attempted poetry, but always thought it was crap. And I was like, let me just get rid of that. But then seeing people like, um, as you mentioned, Jason Reynolds, who's mm. long way down was phenomenal. I always pitch mm. it as like, um, a Christmas Carol means like the hit you give maybe. Um, mm. and it's just so good. But like, and seeing your book as well, I was like, Oh my gosh, like, a book can be written uh, solely in poems and just like it's kind of like photographs or snapshots of like the character's life Um, I think I learned a lot about storytelling from movies to be honest yes and so like I see I sometimes when I'm talking about um, passages in the book I call them scenes like like, because I I, I see I saw the book very visually and um, you know I mean I'd love it to be turned into a movie like that would be a dream for me but for me I looked for representation in movies before I looked for it in books you know movies and series and soap operas was where I was looking to see myself I wasn't necessarily going to the library to find myself in 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 books actually um I was going on YouTube maybe and and yeah like I said watching films and tv even yeah Jason Reynolds said the same thing he said that um Uh he was he found his love of writing and poetry actually in rap music Mm. um which is really interesting to me Definitely. And I think, you know, one of my rap role models when I was younger was like Tupac. And mm-hmm. I think he was so interesting because he would be so like gangster one minute and then be like talking about how much he loved his mum the next. And then, you know, there's that book of his poetry, The Rose That Grew From Concrete, which I think is so lovely. And I don't necessarily know, you know, how he would have felt about it, like um, being out there, because it seems like such a personal thing. But at the same time, it's lovely to see that side of him. Um, and I just think we need to be able to, as black men, be able to show the multitudes that we contain, you know, because I think sometimes people just see us one way or the other. And I think we need to, you know, make that much more, you know, problematic for anyone to try and put us in one box or the other, like actually show that we can be this and that and that as well. Um, and so I think, you know, bringing influences from, from rap or from, whatever it might be, Greek mythology or from, you know, uh, drag culture or whatever. I think, you know, the more the merrier because I'm, that's me. Like, I'm so influenced by so many different things and I don't want to just pretend only literature shaped my writing because that's so far from the truth. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I feel like, um, especially as black writers, there wasn't really much to, um, I, I guess, growing up. It's not until recently, I guess, in YA that we're seeing this like range of like literature from like Angie Thomas showing us uh, her being unapologetically herself um, Mm. and her writing is so unique and beautiful Mm. um, to people like uh, Elizabeth Acevedo, who's a different, um, has a different background and Mm. is writing these like verse novels. um, Mm. Like Queenie. Yes. I think Queenie. I think, and I, I I love Queenie and I see it alongside like, because I don't just see things in, book world and you know separated from from tv and, and movies like so when i saw queenie and then prior to that i'd seen like chewing gum mm-hmm. i was like i love it i love kind of this kind of 
bit messy characters that aren't sure of themselves as well and that, that aren't necessarily fully, you know, woke or fully, like, um, got everything together and might have mental health issues and might... Because that's reality, like, in different mm-hmm. times of our life, there'll be... We'll, we'll, we'll know different things, we'll, we'll, we'll be in different stages with our relationships with others and with ourselves we'll think of our blackness one way or, or, or another way another day or we might be queer we might not be queer we might be questioning like and i just think you know bringing more kind of less stereotypical characters to the forefront and them being mainstream means that the kind of the mainstream idea of black person isn't so simple anymore and i think that that is really good like i think that's really good to show that we are not just you know, gangsters or or like um, Beyonce, like, <laughs> and it's interesting, like Beyonce and Jay Z, like that is kind of like what we've got sometimes, like or for for a long time, it's like we've got the gangster rapper and like the the glamorous showgirl, and it's like mm-hmm. there's so much more to us than those things, and um, and I think we need stories that kind of like show that we can be many things and that we can be messy and that we yeah. can be problematic and that we can be but we can also be unapologetic and we can also be um you know right on and revolutionary or whatever do you know what i mean oh 100 like i feel like with queenie specifically i mm. think it made a lot of people uncomfortable because they had to kind mm. of they had to think what they thought about black women prior to reading it. And yeah. um, a lot of people kind of make us into these, I don't know, godlike figures and kind of um, uh, dehumanize us and don't yeah. let us make mistakes. And I love that uh, Candace just like completely ruins everybody's, like they just she just shatters uh, the image that people have of us and makes us more human. Yes, definitely. Because there's so much space for white people to be human. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Like, why is Fleabag so popular? That woman is yeah. abhorrent. But, like, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's so, it's, it's brilliant. Like, I love it. But I just think, you know, was chewing gum is a very similar kind of tale of, of, of a very messy woman trying to figure out who she is and what she's about. But it didn't get anywhere near as much, you know, um, accolades and i've been saying this i've been saying this because like i love fleabag i think it's so funny um Mm -hmm. but chewing gum is the same thing i think yeah and it's just like i feel like it's something that people see as a niche whereas fleabag this thing that's like mainstream and is getting all these awards and it's getting all this like attention that it does it deserve like a lot of awards and everything but so does chewing gum and it's just unfair to me well, I think the thing is, when we see a white woman, and I'm going to say something maybe that's controversial, maybe not, but when we see a white woman, we see a woman. Yeah. And when we see a black woman, we see a black woman. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, it, and it's not just a woman. And it's the same when we see a white man, we see a man. But when we see a black man, we see a black man. Yeah. And it's just really devastating to, to realise that. You know, I realised that some years ago, but I didn't know it as a teenager. I was just... I think when you think about attraction or, like, say, Michael's attraction... Um, to guys in the book he doesn't know he's attracted to white guys he's just like coming to terms with that he likes guys and then it kind of dawns on him when it's pointed out but you just like white guys don't you and it's like <laughs> oh, oh shit like why was I not fancying the black boy like why has that not been an option to me and um, and it's because you just don't think of black people that way like and that's really sad like and so you know I hope that kind of 
problem for Michael is, is a learning point for those that read it. That it's just like we are conditioned, uh, even we don't know it, like to, to see beauty and, you know, even just the idea of man and woman as white man and woman and, um, and in these binaries as well. You know, I don't think I deal with gender anywhere near as much as I could have, like in terms of, um, but because this Michael isn't a non-binary character, Michael is a boy and becomes a man. Um, and I've been kind of misunderstood in another interview where someone was like, oh, you're non-binary character. I'm like, no, he's just a boy that's like, not like every other boy. Like he's just kind of got his own thing. And because they challenge gender stereotypes for you, you think that makes him non-binary, but they don't. Like, it's just like boys can do drag, boys can have Barbie dolls, boys can like want to sing and dance and whatever it may be. And boys can like boys. Um, it doesn't mean they're suddenly not a boy. <laughs> and so I think it's been, yeah, really interesting for me to kind of like look back at the book critically now as I'm kind of receiving uh, reviews and also like doing interviews where people have kind of taken a more critical eye on it and I get to as the author that's now working on other things I get to look at it slightly differently from when I was originally writing it does that make sense yeah it does yeah and so like in the future like I think yeah I'm interested in like talking about gender a lot more than I have in this book possibly and the thing (laughs) is like I feel like not every book can do everything and um i think your book does a lot and it was just i was so blown away like um i think if i had read it as a teenager it would have been a slap across the face um (laughs) it would have been like you're like michael and you're like um conditioned to believe that whiteness is like the ultimate form of beauty and um when it's pointed out for michael i was like whoa that's um that's a real slap across the face and even just like so many conversations that happen in this like um seeing the i mean i I kind of see your poetry as like um visually and there's a there's a scene where like um michael's dancing in a club and um he's dancing with another black queer guy and i was like oh my god it was so emotional i've never felt like that since i've watched uh since i watched moonlight that was the last time i felt that way and so i was like oh my gosh this is just so beautiful but um to see someone be like seen as beautiful and be a black person that's like dark skinned that was amazing so yeah think like about who we write for like who who are you writing for with your first book like what's the what's Um, the audience you have in mind so actually the dedication is um for the black kids um trying to like claw their way out of the sunken place um my book's about yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah um, my book okay. is like pitched as Get Out meets Gossip Girl, but gayer, oh and it's like um, about these two black kids at a white school, and something starts going wrong. Like they mm-hmm. they keep on getting like text messages and stuff, and they soon find out something like institutional is happening, and um, okay. it just deals with a lot of things. And I really wanted to make it queer because I feel like when we discuss really big topics in the black community, often um, the black queer stuff comes next. Um, and I really wanted a book that was just for someone like me. So I was like, I wanted to, so the book, my book is for, um, black kids in general who are in a sunken place, which a lot of us are, um, at first. And then also black queer kids, um, who need to see complicated, like the complicated versions of queerness. Cause I think the queerness 
I see in books and stuff, um, they're lovely and I, I, I like what like seeing them and everything. But like, um, they're often too clean. I don't like using the word clean, but they're often, they just don't have um, the complicated things that come with trying to figure out identity and stuff. Yeah. Um, and even in your book, like when Michael, um, his best friend, he like thinks he has to consider what he thinks about her. Mm-hmm. And um, even she has a, she, she's really homophobic to him at one point. And then she realizes in herself that actually she's like going through something internally and it's just not click like clean cut and, and um I just wanted it to be for those kids basically. So yeah. Right. How about you? Who do you write for? I mean, I, I'm resonating with the idea of not clean cut and I'm glad it is still um you can read it as not clean cut because we've cleaned it up <laughs> in the editing. I'd say like things were more complicated and messy when I first, you know, in early drafts of the book, but having an editor who is both uh, white and straight, mm-hmm. like, it meant that they they couldn't comprehend the levels of confusion <laughs> in my character at first. <laughs> so I had to kind of, like, make it a bit less so that, like, uh, a potential reader that isn't black and queer could kind of uh, comprehend what was going on, mm-hmm. so to speak. So I guess I was writing for... Maybe people who haven't had these experiences as well, because I think definitely I wanted um, young black queer people to see themselves in these characters, but also I wanted others to have uh, to maybe learn or empathise from from reading these uh, this character and and the others, because I just think, um, yeah, I just think it, it it was an opportunity, especially you know publishing with a with a with a mainstream publisher that were going to give it a push to get out there to readers who who might not know anyone who's black and queer and might be learning this stuff if they're not watching series or movies about this stuff, learning it for the first time in this book. So I really wanted to like have points of learning happen for Michael and for others in the book, but hopefully they come across in organic ways. They come up in conversations and they are, you know, people make mistakes and say things that are a bit incorrect and someone corrects them but it doesn't feel like like a glossary of terms it feels Mm -hmm. like it's put in there um in a way that you know but i wanted to center the blackness and the queerness obviously that's why the main character is that because there's there's so much out there where the black uh queer characters are like a side yeah (laughs) like like sexual education and eric yeah or in the politician the vice president like um and i just think that that kind of oh i just think you know, a bit of a bit of spice in the story. That's what they seem like sometimes. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> um, and no, I wanted like the story to center uh, blackness and queerness, um, and um, yeah, that was really important for me. But no, I was hoping that that white people and straight people and, and people of all ages, not just teenagers, were going to read the book because you know I do want my work to reach as many people as possible, and I saw YA not as a limiting factor, but actually as um, a really great opportunity to, to get into schools and, and reach teenagers. Um, because I think my, my adult writing couldn't necessarily always do that. It was My first book was called I'm Nobody's Nigger. Mm-hmm. You know, and even just that, the N-word alone was enough for teachers and, and schools to be a bit wary of it. But The Black Flamingo sounds so innocent. And I'd say... The Black Flamingo is a lot more political and a lot more dealing with a lot more um, controversial subjects than I'm Nobody's Nigger was. It just so happens that one had a 
a title with a, with a profanity and then the other one just sounds very intriguing um, but it's the intriguing book the black flamingo that is actually the more complicated and and, and um, controversial I'd say but YA is wonderful for that I don't think YA is shy about controversy or dealing with difficult subjects and and I'm really glad to be part of it because you know I didn't realize that really beforehand that how how much they you know are willing to deal with 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 sex and sexuality and drugs and mental health and like all sorts of things that are part of the teenage experience but you know they're 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 a really good place to explore it um in a in a in a way that's i don't know responsible is the word i'd use like i think you have to as a ya author write a responsible story i mean some would argue that that shouldn't be the case but i think i'm dealing with impressionable readers so i want to make sure i'm i'm giving accurate information and also showing the consequences of some of the kind of more risky behaviors does that make sense yeah i i agree and um i think ya is such a lovely space to explore so many things in i i do love middle grade and i love um sometimes i love adults but i feel like um i don't know i feel why ya just gives you that ability to look into like the darkest parts of your brain and like pull out a story i think other age categories can be a little bit more clean cut um Uh and so i think ya has the space to be more messy um i think that's why queenie has done so well because i think the adult space needs that as well yes yes definitely definitely i mean there's there's a whole i've just um i'm currently reading um boy queen um, Mm -hmm. by george lester which is another like drag coming of age story but kind of similar to mine like it's predominantly well it's actually all as he's 18 years old pretty much okay. so um obviously the black flamingo you meet michael at, at six and he grows up but i still say the most of the book is kind of the older end of teen mm-hmm. and i think that older end of teen is not so far from getting into the 20s as well like and it's really like an interesting category that I don't know that we've decided whether it fully exists, this new adult idea. Um, what do you think about it? Because so when I speak to people, they say different things, that it's like it only works in romance or it's only like um, it's not really a genre, it's just like the top of YA. Do you think kind of dealing with adults like that, kind of like in their early 20s, is its own genre? Or is it kind of, can it be within YA? I think that... Um... I really hate the rigid um, kind of boxes that people have mm-hmm. tried to put YA into. Because I think mm-hmm. uh, people that are in their early 20s or even like uh, reaching 20 are still young adults trying to figure mm-hmm. things out. And especially um, black kids and brown kids and queer black kids and people mm-hmm. that just basically didn't ha- like, get to have um, a normal teenagehood. They're kind of coming of age later. Um, yeah. And so we need those stories to take place then because it feels kind of disgenuine to kind of force not force but like um i personally feel like a lot of my friends that are black and brown or black and brown and queer and everything um they weren't able to have the experiences that most white teen like white teenagers got to have and so it feels like uh disgenuine to have just the stories happening to 16 year olds when that didn't really happen to people in real life um but <laughs> yeah. i feel like um in new adult i think what happened was i've heard that 
they had the genre and they were going to experiment with it but then it, it slowly turned into kind of a not slowly quickly turned into a romance genre that was very yeah. erotica rather than it being something that was kind of like um i hate the author but um fangirl by rainbow Rowell. um <laughs> that like that was set in university and a girl a shy girl trying to open up and then uh-huh. there's also like so many books that i personally feel that like should be aged up because um I don't know, the protagonists feel like they would be older or would be really interesting to have it in that older setting. I just wish YA would expand itself more and not be shy. I actually wanted to write a book set in university, but um, my agent just said that the market, and it's true, the market is not there yet. Mm. Yeah. I've had another question, because you seem to know so much. Um, <laughs> like, why do you think YA needs, or people think YA needs to have, like, romance in it? Ooh. Like I know, for example, like Al- um, Alice Osman's writing a new or has written a new book with a asexual character, which I'm really excited to read. But like, um, yeah, why is romance always seen as an important element to a YA book? It's so strange because, like, um, in middle grade, it's like taboo to have it there, and yeah. then with YA, it seems like you have to have it; otherwise, it's not marketable enough. Um, mm-hmm. I think that, like, I think people. And this is an issue I feel like I've seen even when I was a teenager. It's like people believe that you should kind of create this idea that if you are a teenager and you're not having like um, kind of like a teenage romance and stuff and you're not worth anything. And they kind of push that. They've pushed it on to teenagers forever. Like with rom-coms, yeah. they're always set in high school and stuff. Like you see yeah. like um, Pretty Pretty in Pink, for example, or shows about prom and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. It's like constantly for decades it's always been if you're a teenager and you're not having like um the time of your life with like an amazing romance then you're not like any you're not worth anything basically and i think that's why so many teenagers have self body image and like issues and like um self-esteem issues because like we've been told that basically you're meant to be i don't know this is your the, the, the moment in your life when you're meant to be having all your experiences rather than you be seeing as a person that's literally just kind of been born yesterday and um, <laughs> you still have time. <laughs> yeah, because for me, I felt like it was, I mean, I knew there would be some romance in The Black Flamingo, but I didn't want to make the story a romance. Mm-hmm. Like his uh, romantic interests are really on the side of his journey of self-discovery you know what's most important to michael is that he learns to love himself and he's not getting that just from the validation of someone else finding him attractive and like it was more about him learning to you know stand up for himself so when there is like the kind of potential love interest that turns sour he can stand up to that person and and speak his mind and not fear upsetting him he's not trying to get him back necessarily he just wants to say um say his piece um and um you know but there is other there is another love interest waiting in the wings um but like (laughs) it's not what the story's focused on Mm -hmm. is it and i i just think i don't know i would have been probably bored to tears just writing a a love story (laughs) because i think self-love is the love story you know um and that's been true of my life and i think that's so important for so many uh, black and queer people to learn mm-hmm. self-love um, and I think you know that's if anything the message I want to put across in this book um, did your new book have, have a bit of romance what you, what you did oh. <laughs> um, I feel like 
I'm kind of similar. Like, there's there is romance in it, but like it's not nothing's as it seems. And mm. I wanted. I thought I said this to my editor. I didn't want anyone to finish the book in a relationship. Um, oh. So my book is dual POV. Um, so okay. yeah. So I wanted both of them to end up alone and <laughs> and kind of like have. That's so cruel. I know. <laughs> Um, I wanted them to be alone and kind of have only themselves and have to deal with that. Uh, like one of my uh, characters, he very much relies on um, being in a relationship with someone. He was always jumping into new ones if he's not in uh, one. And I wanted uh, him to kind of be able to be okay in the end by himself. Uh-huh. Same with my uh-huh. other character. She's always felt like she's had to have someone as well. And also when I was growing up and obviously being a black woman, um, it's just such a... I didn't realize I was a black woman for a very long time. <laughs> like I, okay. I think that um, there's a moment where kids realize they're black and it's really, really like shocking. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, like just being a black woman and always realize, like realizing that um, black women are not at the top at, of like desirability, not even in the middle, they're at the very bottom. And so seeing all these YA books and stuff center romance, uh, so many black women grew up feeling like they're nothing because... Um, it's like you're invisible very much so um yeah i really love books that look at friendship and platonic soulmates Mm, yeah lovely oh i can't wait to read your book when's the proof coming oh my gosh i hope it i hope it like exists but i think if we can't get physical proofs i definitely will get you a proof of like an ebook version or if there is physical proof so i think my um my editor really wants there to be so i'll definitely oh. make sure she sends one out i'm excited <laughs> <laughs> also can you hear the drilling in my background i can't okay but... good because i hope it doesn't pick up but <laughs> uh, whenever i'm trying to record they, that's when like outside things start happening <laughs> so i was wondering what was your publishing journey like um how was it especially as a black queer person and just from beginning to end, how did you get to where you are today? Um, in the beginning, there was um, me just writing poems and speaking them at open mics. And at one of the open mics, I um, was performing and was afterwards approached by a Radio 4 um, producer who had a show um, of poetry called Bespoken Word. And I did something on there. And I think from that, I was 18, but doing something on the radio, getting paid to do it, made me suddenly take it way more seriously. And I was just like, okay, like this can be a thing. And so I started, you know, going to lots more events. And then when I was asked to perform or invited to perform, I'd be like, yeah, please pay me because I've been on Radio 4. And so then I was starting to get paid gigs. And um, then at gigs, people... Um, often like English teachers would come up to me and say, do you do school workshops? And I'd be like, yeah, sure. Like, and I just came up with a school workshop and then another school workshop. And so for a long time, that was my vibe, like was paid poetry gigs and then paid um, school workshops. And then, um, you know, putting stuff online as well, like using things like SoundCloud and YouTube and um, Bandcamp. I used to make these poetry albums with like friends of mine who made music and I'd put my poetry to music and put those out there. Um, and I'd done three of those um, by the time I'd written the poem, I'm Nobody's Nigger. And then a couple of publishers got in touch with me because that poem went viral and um, basically asked if I had enough for a book. And I looked through my stuff 
and um, thought, yeah, I could make a book out of all these poems. And but it was so interesting because I'd been so focused on spoken word. So many of my like tried and tested, you know, like my poems that were really great to perform. I didn't even have a written down version of them anymore. I just memorized them and lost the piece of paper that I'd written them on. Um, so I had to like scribe my stuff back down on paper from memory and um, you know put together a manuscript and um, at that time I'd already met Benjamin Zephaniah and I got some advice from him about it as well and um, then yeah got my first book out there that was 2013 and then I went to university to do a master's degree um, at Goldsmiths um, and um, that was really good in terms of like my my writing um, for the page, I think. And then I got an agent through a friend of mine who introduced me to an agent. And then she kind of set about trying to get me another book deal with a new manuscript of poetry. But that, um, yeah, got quickly turned into um, a YA first novel called The Black Flamingo because I'd been writing, you know, about a flamingo. Like in my poetry, I'd gone to Cyprus to visit it. Um, family and seen the black flamingo um, and that had become this kind of like um, kind of metaphor for me and like a kind of a, a spirit animal that I was like constantly revisiting in my in my poetry because I went to lots as well as doing the master's degree I went to lots of poetry workshops and writing residentials and 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 stuff like that um, a place called Arvon I think I've been there about five times um, and so I was just taking my writing really seriously and so it got to a point where, yeah, I had this manuscript, but in the end, um, what I thought was going to be a, a second poetry book turned into the first novel because my agent just kind of convinced me that there was more of a market for YA. <laughs> um, so the journey was that. Like, it was, um, you know, getting out there and doing it, and um, but then also kind of accepting advice and guidance, I guess, along the way, and um, kind of constantly you know, whether it's mentors um, in, in an informal sense or, you know, going on, on retreats and um, doing writing workshops or doing my master's degree. I think all of that kind of helped me become a better writer, but also kind of understand the landscape into which I was writing. Um, but yeah, so when it came to actually working with my um, editor at Hodder Children's Books, it was, um, I was much more open to kind of critique and to, um, you know, being more collaborative. And um, so I think if, like, being edited is really intense. And I think had I not been uh, through many workshops and done a master's and, like, had that experience already in, 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 in short bursts, I wouldn't have been able to handle the editing process um, because, you know, someone coming back with, like, 100... 200 300 comments on something you've spent <laughs> months working on it's just very overwhelming like so yeah i i kind of i felt like i was primed for that um with the journey that i went on i love that and i always say to people that there's not one way of um getting into publishing and i think no. that everyone has kind of their own unique journey um yeah. and so yeah i think that I always tell people, I always like ask this question to people that come on the podcast because I think it's just so, it's so important that people see this, um, that, um, whether you're like, I don't know, you're in university or doing your PhD or whatever, 
everything mm. you've learned and everything can come in handy um, to publishing and what you're doing now. So thank you so much for sharing your publishing journey. That was you're interesting. Welcome. I'm sure I missed some things out as well, but you can't <laughs> literally recount your whole life. Um, <laughs> but hopefully I'll write an autobiography one day. <laughs> I would read <laughs> that. I'll put the rest in there. <laughs> and what inspired The Black Flamingo? Oh, so like um, I mentioned in my journey, so it was going to Cyprus to visit um, my family that lived there and there was a sighting of a black flamingo. This was in 2015 and apparently it's the, the, the only black flamingo in the world. Um, and uh, yeah, and so the fact that like National Geographic was covering it and the fact that it was on the news in Cyprus and people were talking about it and um, it was just like, it just really stood out to me. But what actually... The inspiration wasn't just seeing the flamingo, it was um, my grandfather saying, like, why is it such a big deal? Like, why do the other flamingos don't care that it's black? Why do we care? And um, and that really struck me because I'd always thought, well, not just thought, I know from my mum that my granddad wasn't happy that she'd had children with a black man and had black kids. Um, and that was, you know, a, an issue for him when um, my mum was first pregnant and first had me and so for him to come along I guess so far in his understanding of, of things and, and be able to just say it shouldn't matter so for me it felt like he was saying you know how much he loved me and um, you know and I, and I took that moment and I ran with it you know and it's there in the book like so that moment is based on a real experience when you read the book you'll see but like it was yeah, that was the moment, and then I just kind of really latched onto this idea of a black flamingo and what it could mean and what it, what it could represent. So for me, it represented being black and queer and standing out from the crowd, and I thought, you know, sometimes when I've gone to white gay clubs, like, I felt like the only black person there and such a novelty, but often, you know, I've been in other situations where I'm the only black person, or, you know, the fact that within my mum's family just me and my sister the only black people and so that kind of was what it was about and I tried to write about those experiences metaphorically rather than directly in the poems that I was writing at first and um and uh yeah and some of that writing is in there and some of that isn't in the book because that was more my building up to understanding what I meant when I said black flamingo and so I kind of yeah was writing metaphorically around it and like bringing in different things about eggs and flight and um and all sorts of kind of imagery to do with with flamingos and um yeah and it just kind of expanded and and i guess what happened was i was convinced to put a story on it and not write in the abstract and and just in metaphors but actually to to tell a story with this and that's that's what happened after when i started writing the book and it's just such a beautiful kind of metaphor. Um, it really resonated with me. I feel like what I got from it when I was reading your book was that um, to see blackness in a positive light. Because I think so many teams, um, and I know I did, grew up feeling like it was a burden and it was the worst thing ever. And I kept on wishing I was white and normal. And I feel like um, that scene where the sighting happens, I was yeah. just like, it, it was just such a, a beautiful scene because it was like it was framed in a way that it should be seen as something remarkable that you have black skin rather than it being seen as you're not normal 
but mm. something that is newsworthy or like something that should be celebrated so i really loved uh. that and actually um when you mentioned going to like clubs with mostly white people and stuff i remember i went to um a halloween party a lgbt halloween party at uni and i was yeah. the only black person and um <laughs> I remember um, we're just standing in a circle and one person said to me like they realized I was there and then they decided they were like so police brutality trying to relate to me and I was like what (laughs) I was just like is that how you want to relate to me (laughs) Wow. but yeah that was really um, that was funny but yeah (laughs) I don't know yeah it's it's difficult because people try you know but they can get it so wrong yeah well like they definitely were trying but it was just like it was interesting that like i don't know they don't know how to just be normal around people um and they just see it as kind of novel in a bad way but thank you so much for sharing that as well and it's so cool that you were there at the same time that rare sighting happened it's just like fate yeah it was it was funny because I wasn't meant to be going because it was in April and mm-hmm. I don't usually go to Cyprus in April I usually only go in the summer when I can really enjoy the beach and the heat but um what had happened was like a load of my freelance work had been cancelled um like two big projects that I was like depending on got cancelled at the same time and I was left with a whole month with no work I I was just like what am I meant to do and I was just like well I could hunt for work I could um just like stay home and do nothing I could spend lots of money because London's so expensive um try to fill my time or I could spend a little bit of money in a flight and go to Cyprus and spend this month in Cyprus where I don't have to pay another penny because my grandparents will feed me and I can just like chill like, and so I bought my plane ticket and went to Cyprus in April and just like hung out with my granddad and grandma like and and that was why the Black Flamingo happened because because my work got cancelled so wow. who knows what's gonna happen you know say right now people are home um when <laughs> they didn't plan to be home but who knows what stories will come out of it um i always try and look for the i don't know the possibility and disappointment what could what could happen instead i think that's such a good way of looking at things and i think mm. that's kind of how i see things now because i try to, to kind of like i used to be very um i used to be a lot more anxious about stuff but rather than like making myself unwell and i'll yeah. just be like you know things happen for a reason so uh-huh. it's a good way of looking at things and i mean now you have like a book that's done so well and it's incredible and it's just all because of work that was cancelled well and all because of a comment from my grandfather i yes. don't think if my grandfather had commented on that i don't know if i'd have explored it as deeply mm-hmm. um i don't think it would have meant as much to me you know and he's 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 passed away now like and so and i dedicated the book to him um, and it's funny because I wasn't out to my grandfather because it kind of never came up um, because I never took a boyfriend with me to Cyprus because um, I never seemed to have a boyfriend any given summer <laughs> to take with me to Cyprus. I was always a single come summertime. Like I'd get a boyfriend around like um, New Year or, or Valentine's and it would, would last maybe till <laughs> March or April. <laughs> three months at a time no but basically i i'd always said to myself if i have a boyfriend come the summer i'll take him with me to cyprus and i never did 
And so I just never told my grandparents about my sexuality. I mean, my grandma knows now um, because, um, I don't know, I just stopped caring. Like, of, And I've mentioned it because I live with my partner now. I've, I've kind of, um, my grandma's like, your friend, you and your friend in Scotland? I'm like, my boyfriend, grandma, my boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but yeah, with my granddad, it just never came up. But I kind of think, yeah, this, this book, even though it's not necessarily for him, I think it is for him because it wouldn't have happened without him. Um, That's so, so lovely. Yeah. <laughs> And um, I was wondering what made you fall in love with drag and if you could collab with any famous drag artist, who would you mm. pick? Um, so what made me fall in love with drag was actually doing it. I think watching drag, I thought it was a, a great art form and I thought it was, um, yeah, pretty cool and fun. But it wasn't until I did it myself um, that I realised how liberating it felt like and how difficult it was as well and um how varied it is as an art form like you only see certain types of drag if you only watch rupaul's drag race but when you start going to the clubs in london and around the world like i've been to drag clubs in berlin and i've been to drag clubs in you know brighton and manchester and birmingham and and um you know in in athens i went to one and like there's so many different ways of doing drag and when you hear drag performed say in another language um and you don't necessarily speak that language you see it the art form for the visual and for the physical and for the attitude and the audience interaction when uh, when i was in you know athens and i only speak a little bit of greek um and hearing the kind of catching words and phrases but seeing how much the audience loved that drag queen and how much what they were saying was was speaking to the the, the kind of social and political moment um of that space and of the country and of this you know it just it just has a resonance and i think drag is a live art form i don't think it's necessarily um solely for instagram or solely for a tv program that's like a, a time capsule i think it's actually about being there in the moment with the performer is a totally different type of drag than what you can capture on screen um, and so that's the drag I fell in love with. And so when I did my first drag performance at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, and you know I had some friends there, but mostly strangers, um, that just I felt connected to them, and they were feeling like you know what I was saying and doing. And I was not just saying it with words; I was saying it using lip syncing. I was saying it using my body, with my costume, and with you know with how I painted my face. And 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 you know before you even say a word, you've said so much by standing there. In, in your makeup and in your heels and in your costume you are speaking volumes to them and that is just to me incredible and i've you know seen a performance you know the the question you also asked was who i'd like to collaborate with i've seen a performer um who's they're canadian but they're based i think in london still victoria sin and they did this performance where they're basically enacting domesticity and like the almost this idea of what a woman should be basically and like they did it by <laughs> i mean their makeup is incredible just you have to look them up to see who i'm talking about victoria sin because they're not incredibly famous but like in the london scene they're they're really highly regarded um and their their act was them uh, making a grilled cheese sandwich 
on an ironing board. So like basically they were just there with some bread and cheese and an iron and the way they just, with, without any words, some music playing in the background, but they just put down a slice of bread, put a cheese on that, put another slice of bread, use the iron to grill the sandwich. And it was just like mesmerizing. And you were seeing in, in the facial expressions they were doing and in the body language, that they were just like taking the piss out of like this idea of domesticity and these expectations of women. And they were just, and it, but they didn't say anything to that effect, but you just saw it and felt it. And I just think when drag can, even without words, say so much, you know, for someone that uses words, so many words, um, I feel like that's just so incredible and so powerful. Um, so that was almost like a mime drag act, I guess. But like, um, yeah, I think the possibilities and the kind of the infinite variety that comes with drag, um, you know, I think that's what makes me love it because there isn't one way to do it. And it's not just about what you look, it's about you know what you're trying to say but you can also say things without words that's just amazing and i'm gonna look up um that drag artist what did you say then victoria sin victoria Sin. Sin. okay i'm going to look that up and i'm gonna put it in the show notes to everyone cool and so they can see it um but thank you so much for sharing that and i was wondering what are your tips for writing a verse novel read lots of verse novels and then read lots of poetry and then read lots of novels and like take the best best bits from all of that um because i think you've got to have a mastery of both really the novel form and the form of poetry to be able to do a verse novel well i'd say um and i'd say yeah don't just read say if you're writing ya don't just read ya read you know all um, all genres and ages of, of, of writing if you can um, because I think we'll get you know the most out of your voice if you've kind of like really been immersing yourself in, in, in language and words um, but I'd say it's going to depend on your topic I don't know maybe you can write any story as a verse novel but I do think it's worth considering why the story you're choosing wants to be a verse novel um, because I think some stories work so well as a verse novel it obviously helps if maybe your protagonist is a poet (laughs) so like the poet x it just works so well because it's a poet and so it's her poetry that kind of tells the story and that makes perfect sense i think the long way down works so well because it's kind of like you know the the counting down the minutes or seconds um as we're in this elevator so i think there's this kind of like the, the kind of compression of time works because time is stretched out in these poems in in a really interesting way um and i think you know verse novels can work as almost like diary entry type setup and i think um brown girl dreaming does that quite well and i think um moonrise does that quite well um but i think yeah why why a verse novel is the first question you want to ask yourself not just because you're a poet and you want to write a novel but like why is it you want to writing that style I think what attracted me to it was kind of seeing it as episodes of someone's life so you know like snapshots or or kind of like being able to just jump right in um to the moment um at any given time of Michael's life um so for me I think the verse that worked in that regard but I think the main advice is just to be reading lots um and then yeah just really asking yourself why this character why your narrator 
is going to be doing so in poetry? Why does that make sense for your character or narrator? That's amazing advice. Thank you for um, sharing that as well. And Mm -hmm. have you ever written in prose and do you have any plans to? Um, I have written in prose and I've I've written and published a short story um, called Rice and Peas or Granny's Kitchen. I can't remember what I called it in the end. It was in an anthology um, that I don't have in my house. I think it's at my mum's house. Um, But like, um, it's really interesting because I wrote it um, about you know a black queer character, um, but a black queer character that is experiencing uh, domestic violence from his partner, and um, it's really tough to write because it wasn't based on personal experience. It was based more on research and friends that had been in that situation, and it was you know quite dark and and it's not, it wasn't very clear cut because um, it was almost the character really loved their partner and so it wasn't that they were trying to escape this situation it was just they were trying to understand the situation um and um and it yeah it made for uncomfortable reading and then i i kind of learned it and performed it as a monologue and so it made for uncomfortable um viewing for people that i performed it to but what happened with it was that people assumed it was autobiographical this work of fiction people were really believing it was autobiographical, so I found it quite challenging to work with it because, you know, when I performed it, people would come up to me with a lot of sympathy, um, assuming that I had been in this um, violent relationship, and it was really difficult to kind of tell them I wasn't because they actually felt them betrayed by that. They felt like I'd lied to them in some regard because I was performing the work. Um, So I guess it was a different type of of work but it was a work of fiction and I, and I found it quite strange that this, this monologue was just automatically assumed to be um, true um, of me, the, the performer um, so I found that even when I've written characters and performed them in poetry um, as well, like I felt like um, people just assume everything you write is going to be about you and that's certainly been the case with the Black Flamingo like everyone thinks Michael is just a carbon copy of me and actually, like, there's so many um, things that I wish were my life, but just weren't. Like, I think I wrote a much more put together and much more, um, you know, successful <laughs> teenage life than I had. <laughs> um, but yeah, fiction is is not entirely new to me. I've also written uh, for the theatre. I've written plays. Um, I wrote a musical once, and I also have written. Um, yeah, other other plays. I wrote a play called Queen Poku, um, and I wrote another play called If These Walls Could Talk, and I wrote another play. Well, the musical was called Scratched Out, and that was very much like a hip hop R and B musical, which was really fun to work on. Um, but yeah, and I've, I've I've worked with characters, and I also have been an actor, so I've had lots of experience of telling other people's stories or telling stories that are not my own. Um, That's really so cool. I, yeah. I think it's been it's been fun. I think stories are stories, whether they're true stories or, or made up stories. If they feel like they have some emotional truth, people relate to them. Yeah, and um, do you feel like doing all of the different types of storytelling um, has helped you? Oh yeah. I mean, I think because sometimes I think reality is stranger than fiction, so. <laughs> I think if you try and base something too closely on real life, it seems actually more unbelievable 
and if you just like make something up because I think um, yeah our lives don't follow the clear kind of story arc and character development in real life isn't always as clear cut as, as it is in stories and I think that's why we like these kind of more messy stories and characters um, because they are a bit closer to real life because we are messy and confused and, um, <laughs> as people even if we like to present uh, a, a more clean cut version of ourselves on maybe our social media for example Very true. Um, I think we all know there's a lot more going on and what's behind those those lovely filtered photographs <laughs> yes <laughs> and uh, my last question for you is what do you want readers to take away from reading the black flamingo i think i'd like them to take away some hope and optimism you know for our, for themselves and for us you know all in terms of young people being more free to be themselves these days and um the world being a a bit more of an accepting place you know gradually over time but then I mean none of that can be taken for granted and we see you know peaks in racism you know around Brexit for example or we see you know different minorities being persecuted in different countries all the time you know including our own but it's just for me I think this book should be you know a bit of hope in all of that um, because I think this is a story of a boy who's empowered that isn't um, restricted um, you know despite there being a lot of um, forces in the world that want to hold him back um, he's also got enough uh, allies you know and uh, people on his side that are, are going to help him realise you know his full potential and um, that's what I want for all all young people and all people so um yeah just to show that that's possible basically even if it's uh, in a work of fiction that's so lovely thank you so much for being on my podcast today and i was wondering where can everyone find you um in social media and your website if you have one um, my website is deanatta.com and my social media is all dean atta d-e-a-n-a-t-t-a on twitter and instagram um, but I also have a Facebook page and I have a YouTube channel. I've done a few new videos recently. I hadn't done for a long time, but I just had some time on my hands. So I put some videos up. <laughs> um, so, uh, Dean, could you just give us some final words um, to end the podcast on? Final words? Um, <laughs> I don't know, actually. Like, I feel like Jerry Springer. Like, my final thoughts. I mean... I guess the final words in the book, which are not spoilers, um, but come in the prologue, it says, remember you have the right to be proud, remember you have the right to be proud.